this this morning, Lord, we just want to celebrate uh, all that you've done in the last uh, 48, 24 hours in, in the lives of the men here at this church. And it was so cool to see just, Lord, the impact walking out yesterday um, of just what it's like to spend time in your word, to spend time being honest, to let you into the places that we oftentimes don't let people in. And today, God, as we unpack what it looks like to live this life that you want us to live, Lord, I pray that we would begin to do that here and now. Lord, that we would, the doors that we keep locked and sealed, Lord, the doors that we brick over and pretend that they don't exist, God, today I pray that we would let you into those spaces in our life, that we would trust you in those spaces in our life, Lord, because, uh, Lord, you can heal, because, Lord, you bring mercy, you bring grace, and, Lord, there's only one way to respond to your mercy and your grace, and that is with our everything, and so, Father, today that's what we give you. Uh, Lord, we love you. Let your name be pray. Everybody said, all right, we haven't done this in a while, uh, but we're going to do a little, uh, little Romans karaoke, okay? So I'm going to read the stuff that's in white together out loud. We will read the stuff that's in yellow. But I want you to notice something real quick. You see what's at the bottom of the screen? The final act. Y'all, we are rounding the turn for home. We've been doing this for a while. Super cool that we've been a part of, we've been unpacking Romans really since last September. Uh, and so we are rounding the turn. We're heading home. You're like, all right, how, how fast are we going to get there when we get there? Still the same, right? Still the same. We'll get there when we get there. It's like this is the point in the road trip when you started to ask your parents how much longer, and they would say almost, right? That's kind of where we are right now. Okay, so let's read Romans together. Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, all of us together, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, all of us together, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he says this, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we've been at this for five months. We have covered a ton of ground. We've covered some serious ground from Romans 1 to Romans 12. And so as we round this turn for home in the final act of, of Romans, Paul does a very Paul thing, right? This Paul, if, you, if you're not, not familiar who Paul is, Paul was an apostle. He was a messenger, right? He was someone who planted churches. He was a businessman. He, was, uh, he wrote letters. He, he was a pastor. I mean, this guy uh, did a lot, right? He wrote pretty much the, the half, second half of the New Testament. Uh, but this was a guy who, again, he, he's, as, we, as we round the turn for home, he does a very Paul thing. He puts a therefore at the beginning of the final turn. And you know what we always say when, you're in the Bible, when you read the Bible and you see a therefore? What do we say? What do we ask? What's the therefore therefore, right? You have to ask yourself that. So it's a big therefore. It's a really big therefore that basically covers the previous 11 chapters. So Paul drops this therefore, right? It's critical for us. He dropped that in there because here's the deal. He wanted the people who were listening to this letter back then and now, those who were reading this letter back then and now here today, and people like us who spend months unpacking this letter back then and, and now today, he wanted all of us to make sure in this moment that we take everything that we've unpacked thus far with us as we move forward into this final act. And this final act, I'm just going to be honest with you, is going to ask and it's going to point to the answers to a massive question. 
a question that I think probably every single one of us have asked at some point in our lives and probably are asking all the time. We just don't know it. But here's the thing. We can't ask and we can't even seek to answer that question, this massive question, without first taking inventory of everything that we've come through along the way. All right, so I'm going to take a deep breath, and we're going to try to go through 11 chapters as fast as, we, as fast as humanly possible. Are you ready? Buckle up. Here we go. Everything that we've unpacked so far centers on a bold truth, and it's this, right? God's plan from the very beginning of time was to unite us with him and with each other in this holy, and the word holy means unique, unlike any other relationship with himself and one another. That was the plan. For us to be united in a, in a relationship with God and with each other that is unlike any other relationship we've ever seen. And he does that through the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel, like you said, it's the Greek word euangelion. It's an announcement. It's a new reality of new possibilities and new opportunities in a relationship with God that's available for anyone and everyone that chooses to believe in Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, his perfect life his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, right? That's what happens. That's what the gospel is based on. And the only way, the only way for you and I to step out of the old kingdom and into the new kingdom reality in the gospel, the with God life, is through faith. We, we learned that. Believing that, and what faith is, is believing that Jesus is who he says he is. Believing that Jesus has done and is doing and will do everything that he promised. And so we ask ourselves, why is faith? Why is faith the only way? Here's why. We can't earn our way into the with God life. We can't earn our way into the with God life, right? As we've said time and time and time again, what we've learned as we've unpacked Romans is this. No one deserves, no one is entitled to, no one has a claim on or can earn God's mercy and grace. Because why, why is that? Well, Romans tells us that, that everybody has sinned. Well, what's sin? Sin is when we de-God God. Sin is when we look at God, the author and creator of everything, and say, listen, I, I know that you're good, and I know that you want good for me, but here's the thing, God, I think I can do God better than you. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to run my own life. Why don't you stay out of it? That's what sin looks like. When we push God out of the way, and we say, God, why don't you get on board with my plan? God, I'm going to do things that I want to do. I don't need you in my life. We've de-gotted God. Every single one of us have done that. We've all fallen short. And so what, here's the deal, right? We, we don't and we can't step into this gospel reality by simply trying to be a better version of ourselves. We've said this a lot as we've unpacked Romans. You've got two deals on the table. We have two deals on the table. One deal is the gospel, right, where God saves. The other deal is this. You can try and save yourself. But I'm going to tell you, it's impossible, it's impossible to do that. See, th this gospel deal, what it means is stepping into a new kingdom life, a new way of living where Jesus is both Lord and Savior, right? You can't pick and choose. It has to be both. Jesus is Lord of our lives, and he's also our Savior. But see, this other deal over here, taking this deal where it's like, I just want to live in the old kingdom. I want to be in charge of my own life, the old way of life, right? Here's the thing. It's on you over here to be your Lord and Savior. It's on you to do that. But here's the thing, this, this one over here, this, this new deal, this, this deal, this gospel deal, this gives us peace in our present. It gives us peace right here and now. It deals with, the gospel deals with the wounds and pain and hurt and shame and regret of our past. 
and the gospel redefines how we live in the present. It gives us hope for a future that lasts forever. But this old deal, taking this old deal, what it means is this. It's entirely on you to outwork or outrun your past. It's on you to outwork or outrun or or hide your past mistakes, failures, and, and shame. It's on you to manage your present situations, every part about your life. If you want to be God of your life, you have to manage every single one of your, your present situations, which doesn't leave much time or space for trying to figure out what the future is going to look like for you because you're just constantly putting out fires. See, this old deal is essentially like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It might look good, but all it takes is one iceberg and your life is sunk. So when we step into, when we say yes to Jesus, when we step into the with God life through faith in the gospel of Jesus, it leads us into this no condemnation, Holy Spirit filled, renovated, reshaped, redeemed, reconciled life where nothing separates us from the love of God. And in that space, we run to the people in our lives that are lost and hurting and broken and not away from them. Because we know when we look up to God, when we look out to see what he's doing, when we look in to see the evidence of his gospel at work in us, and we look around to see the church, we know that we are not alone in the with God life. Right? We see the evidence of that. And here's what we know about the with God life. No one is beyond recovery. No one is too broken. No one is too far gone when it comes to God. And the gospel of Jesus can save anyone. Right? There's 11 chapters of Romans summed up in five minutes. Yeah, there we go. All right. So here we go, right? We're, we're going to dive into this next final act. See, according to Paul, what he says is we can't go further into the final act of Romans without hanging on to everything that we just unpacked. Because here's the question. Here's the question that this last, these last four chapters in Romans, here's the question that they're going to tackle. It's this. What does the Christian life look like? What does a Christian life look like? So seriously, how, I mean, how many of us, don't raise your hand, how many of us have ever wanted someone to just spell that out for you? I mean, how many of us have thought, like, all right, I've said yes to Jesus, now what? Like, what does it mean? Like, what does it, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be someone that follows Jesus? What does it mean to be someone who lives in the with God life? I know I have. It feels like we say yes to Jesus, and, and then it's like, well, now what do we do? That's why our church at Adventure, that's why we say, if you're going to stick a label on our church, we're a disciple-making church, because the thing that we really want to do is help people answer that question. What do you do when you say yes to Jesus? I know for me, I think about it in my own life, right? When, when I said yes to Jesus, right, I needed someone. I needed someone to kind of walk me through, like, what does it mean to let go of your past? What does it mean to begin to change? What does it mean to allow the Holy Spirit to renovate your heart, to renovate your life? What does it look like? What does it look like to change the patterns of, and your habits and the way that you live? How do I do this? And that's what's going to happen. Over the next four chapters in Romans, Paul's going to go a long way in doing that. But here's the thing. For Paul, that question can't be answered. The question of how do we live a Christian life, it cannot be answered. We cannot pursue the answer of that question. We can't live that out without remembering and considering and viewing everything in our lives, which means who we are, and what we do in light of God's mercy and grace. You cannot, you and I cannot start to put together what a Christian life looks like and do that outside of God's mercy and grace. We have to keep that with us. We have to keep that in sight. We have to keep that in our grasp. You cannot move forward, right? We cannot move forward if we don't start 
here, in this place of God's mercy and grace being given to you and I through faith in Jesus. You cannot move forward without starting there. One quote I read this week says this, the gospel doesn't say that God took neutral people and made them good. Nor does it say that God took good people and made them better. The gospel says that God takes guilty people and makes them new. So when it comes to answering the question, what does the Christian life look like? The first thing, church, we've got to figure out is this. How do we respond with our lives to God's mercy and grace? That's what it looks like. If we're going to start living a Christian life, if we're going to start living the with God life and really leaning into what that looks like and how that changes who we are, it's not just words, it's not just feelings, it's not just emotions, this is real. If we're going to do this, then the first thing we have to figure out is this, how are we going to respond with our lives to God's mercy and grace? Why does this matter? Why does that matter? I read a great quote in a commentary this week that said this, that conduct and character, which is how we live, Those are the necessary evidences of God's grace and mercy at work within the lives of believers. The bottom line is this. How we live as Christians, as followers of Jesus, how we live matters. How we live matters. You and I, our lives are the evidence of God's grace and mercy at work in us. And here's why it matters. A recent survey was done for people outside of the church, people that would say they don't claim to believe in Jesus, they don't attend or are not a part of a community, a family of faith like this. And one of the questions was asked, do you trust people that are believers? Do you trust Christians? And the overwhelming response was no. And they asked, why? Why is it that you do not trust people who are Christians? And this is what they said. It says, because they profess Jesus, but they don't live like Jesus. We use a lot of big fancy words. We say a lot of things. We use a lot of sound bites. We say a lot of things that sound good. But, again, it's not our words that are the evidence of God's grace and mercy at work in our lives. It's our lives. So the number one reason that people outside the church, when they said, we don't trust Christians, we don't trust people to go to church. Why? Well, it's because... They say a lot of really good things, but they don't live it, right? Another survey was done of people inside the church, and they asked people inside the church, what are the most important aspects of Christian living? And here's how they ranked, number one and number two. Number one was doing good and not sinning, and number two is knowing Jesus. Do you see anything wrong with that? I mean, seriously, it's backwards. It's backwards. And that's the church's response, I mean, so you now can see, like, why, why there's a disconnect between people who are outside of the church and people who are inside of the church. It's because the thing that we value the most is just trying to do good and not sin. Well, does it matter if you know Jesus? Yeah, but that's not important as, as doing good and not sinning. It's backwards. It's backwards. The Christian life, the Christian life, as we're going to find out over the next several weeks, the Christian life is not just about our ability to do or perform like moral principles that we find in the Bible. 
When that's all we seek, when all we do is look in the Bible and just find all of the rules and all the moral principles and things like that, what we do is we actually detach and disconnect all of the, the, those things from our relationship with God. And when we do that, we disconnect the reasons why we do them. When we just try to perform and do the moral principles that we find in Scripture, we detach all of that. We disconnect ourselves from a relationship with God, and that ultimately affects how we live. And here's the truth, all right? Our doing, which is our conduct and character, the things that we do, comes from our being. And it has to go in that order. Our doing comes from our being. And that's who we are as people who are in a relationship with God. Do you understand that? Like, it's super critical that we get that. It's super critical that the gospel isn't just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not something that you can play one day and go, nah, see, you got to let me in, right? It's not like that. The gospel is an invitation into a relationship with God in the Christian life. The way we respond to God's grace and mercy, it has to start with who we are. The Christian life is rooted and established in a living, breathing relationship with God and not a list of rules. If you're taking notes or you want to grab a picture, that's something you may want to remember. It's important that we remember this, that the Christian life is rooted in a living, breathing relationship with God. And the only way that happens is through faith in the gospel. That's where our life is rooted in a relationship with God, not in a list of rules. N.T. Wright, he says it like this. Christian living, he says, never begins with a set of rules, though it contains them as it goes forward. And we're going to talk more about what that is in the next few weeks. It doesn't begin with a set of rules. It has some guidelines. It has guardrails. And those guardrails are there on purpose. Those guardrails are there not because God wants to squash your fun, but because he cares about you. Right? So it, it, it never begins with a set of rules, though it contains them as it goes forward. But here's what N.T. Wright says. It begins, the Christian life begins in the glad self-offering of one's whole self to the God whose mercy, get this, has come all the way to meet us in our rebellion, our sin, and our death. And so as we dive in, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Romans chapter 12. Here's what we find. We find this truth. We find that, that what N.T. Wright is saying is really based in what Paul has to say. And what Paul has to say is based in the Holy Spirit and, and the with God life, right, that he's living. Here's what he says. Therefore, knowing now that that therefore is all 11 chapters that we've just read. In light of God's mercy and grace. In light of, of, of the grace that happens, the gospel, the, the grace that, we're ability to, that we have the ability to step into, the new reality and the opportunities that we have to step into now through faith alone. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in light of all of that, in view of God's mercy, keeping God's grace and his mercy present in your life at all times, in view of that, offer your bodies, he says, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. These are famous verses. I mean, a lot of times when we, read, when we read Romans, we think about Romans 12, 1 and 2. But if you ever like, wonder, like what, like, what does it mean, a living sacrifice? Like, what, like what's, what's, what does that look like? For Paul, here's the thing. Here's what he says. The first step in, in us responding to God's grace and mercy and how we live, the first way for us to do that, right, the first step we take 
is you and I offering and presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to God. What in the world does that mean? Like some of us, like when you hear the word sacrifice, you go back to like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Like, is this how this is going to work? Right? No, here's the thing. In, in the Old Testament, in, in this culture, it was a sacrificial culture. So especially for Jews, right, this was a sacrificial culture. And, and really for them, in this kind of sacrificial culture and some of the guardrails that God had laid out for them in the Old Testament before Jesus, the only way to pay for, to cover the debt of sin was death. And death brought atonement. And if you look at that word atonement, I love playing with words, at one That's what it did. That sacrifice, that death, took two things that were apart and brought them back together. And so what we find in this is there's some really fancy church words, right? When they would do this, they would, they would take a spotless lamb and they would sacrifice this lamb. They would kill it. They would, drain it of, they would drain it of all of its blood. And they said that the death of that lamb, that blood, was the propitiation, fancy word, which means the payment for sin. It would pay the price of sin. It would pay the debt of sin. It would remove the debt of sin from our shoulders, and it would then be placed on this lamb, right? The propitiation, that's what that does. But then they would take a goat, right? They would take a goat, and they would then speak out all of the sins, and they would ceremoniously place all of the sins on this goat, and they would release the goat in the wilderness. That's where we get the term scapegoat from. Like, seriously? They would take all of the sins, they would place it on, they would release it in the wilderness, and that was called the expiation, right? So there's propitiation, which takes the debt of sin, the price of sin, and that gets paid by something else. And then the expiation, all of the power of sin, then gets removed and taken away. It was the removal of sin. And they had to do this on a regular basis. In a specific physical location, at a specific time, and with specific ceremonial sacrificial actions. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us was a once and for all forever sacrifice. So then what does it mean for us to be a living sacrifice in this new gospel reality? So if you look back through scripture, you can find really what it means to be a living sacrifice. In Psalm 51, and this, just so you know, this was, this was a psalm that David wrote after, after it was revealed, right? After he came clean, after he was confronted for getting someone who wasn't his wife, getting a woman who wasn't his wife pregnant, and then killing her husband. So this was a psalm, this was a worship song, a poem that David wrote as he's dealing with that. And here's what he says in Psalm 51. He says, you, God, do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, but my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That, God, you will not despise. See, David, kind of in the depths of dealing with this tragic moment in his life, this, this mistake this sin, this time where he de-godded God. God, I know what you want me to do. I know how you want me to live, but I'm going to do this on my own. And then I'm going to try to cover my tracks. In this moment, here's what he realized. God doesn't just want the gift from the giver, but becoming a living sacrifice for David, for us, means this. It means giving God the gift and the giver. That's what it means. Living our lives as a living sacrifice is not just about you and I going through the motions and checking off little Christian boxes in what we do. Well, God, today I was a living sacrifice for about an hour and a half. I drove to church in J-Town, and I drove home. Is that enough? Check. 
God, today I was a living sacrifice for about 15 minutes when I did my prayer in my, my, my quiet time. Is that enough? Check mark. That's not what that means. That's not what being a living sacrifice means. Being a living sacrifice starts not in what we do, but at the core of who we are. Like David says, with our heart and our spirit, a contrite heart and a broken spirit, realizing that we are spiritually bankrupt if not for Jesus. Jesus talks about what this looks like in John 4. Jesus kind of has, <laughs> I, love, like, I love how Jesus engages in awkward conversation. Like he's super good at it. Like Jesus goes into this, this Samaritan village, which he wasn't supposed to be there. Right? It's not a place that, that Jews went at the time because they hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated them. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Again, a, a no-no. And he starts to have this conversation with her. And, and you know, she's having these, the, talking about this living water, this, this water that if you drink this water, you'll, you'll never be thirsty again. And, and Jesus is like, you know, why don't you bring your husband down to the well? And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right. You've had five. And the dude you're sleeping with now isn't your husband. And she changes the subject real fast. If you go back and read John 4, like, he mentions that, and she goes, hey, let's talk about worship, which is kind of funny. It's like she changes the subject, like, really quickly, and Jesus starts to answer this question about worship. You know, she says, like, hey, you know, you Jews, you think you've got, like, the worship thing figured out and how to do this stuff, but, but we worship here. Like, what's, what's the right way to worship? And Jesus just kind of lets her go. Like, he follows the rabbit trail. And this is, her, and this is his answer in John 4, chapter, John 4, verse 23. He says, a time is coming and is, in fact, now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they're the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that the true worshipers that God seeks are those that go through the motions and check boxes. It doesn't say that. It says really that the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks are those who worship in spirit and in truth. So for us... Becoming a living sacrifice is not about worshiping at a specific location, at a specific time, with specific actions, or a specific band, or specific lyrics. That's not what it is. Being a living sacrifice, worship for you and I happens in spirit and in truth. Here's the truth, church. The new location of worship, where heaven and earth collide, is us. That's the location of worship. And because it's in us, not in a building. Because it's in us, not in an address. Because it's in us, it doesn't require all of this. It can happen all the time. Worship can happen all of the time because the place where heaven and earth meet is in us. And Paul, he echoes this in 1 Corinthians. He says, do you not know that your bodies, they're the temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God? He says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And the crazy thing is, in the time that Paul was writing this, kind of like the commonly held view of the physical body in the Greek culture, in the Roman culture, was that it was far less important and lower than the spirit. See, like the Roman culture, the Greek culture, and, and re, again, look where he was writing to. He's writing to the church believers who are in Rome. They're surrounded by people that believe this, right? They believed that, that really, it, it didn't really matter what you did with your body. You can do anything you want to with your body or to your body just so long as you don't mess with your spirit. Does that sound familiar? Like, it doesn't matter what you do. You can do whatever you want with your body. You can do whatever you want with your body. Just don't mess with your spirit. 
But what we find in the Bible is that God wants all of us. He wants every part of us. He wants our mind. He wants our heart. He wants our body. He wants our spirit. The truth is, church, they're all linked together. Like our minds, our hearts, our spirit, our emotions, those kinds of things, they're not separate buckets in our lives. you got to think of them more like a link in a chain. When one breaks, the whole thing goes. When you strengthen one, it strengthens the whole thing. That's how, they, that's how we're wired. God wired us that, like that way on purpose. Why? We're a package deal. They're not separate from one another. He cares about all of us. And so when we talk about living our lives as living sacrifices to God, we're talking about giving him all of us. The way that I think, my spirit, my spiritual life, my emotions, my heart, my love, my devotion, all of those things, my mind, the way I think, my body, all of it, it's all given to God. All of it is given to God. Why? In a response for his grace and his mercy at work in our lives. Can't move forward without starting there. It's all given in a response to God's grace and mercy at work in our lives. And why do we give all of us? Because God's grace and mercy deals with all of us. It deals with all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our regret. Every single aspect of that is dealt with. So why give God some of who you are when his grace and mercy covers all of who you are? Past, present, and future. And here's some truth, right? The value of something just basic economics, the value of something is truly determined by what someone is willing to sacrifice and pay to get it. I mean, if you just look at like Facebook Marketplace or eBay, especially like when COVID first started, when people were selling like 12 packs of toilet paper for $1,000 and someone's like, yeah, that seems fair. I'll buy that. Like I saw the other day in youth on Wednesday night, a couple Wednesday nights ago, they, they were doing this, how much did it go for on eBay? There was a piece of chewing gum that was once allegedly chewed by Britney Spears that sold on eBay for tens of thousands of dollars. Someone determined that's what it was worth. That person should also probably be checked out, right? I'm just saying. I hope they didn't chew it, right? You think they did? I'm just, we're not going to go down that, right? But here's the thing. Look, look at our own lives. Look at our own lives, Look at the things that we value. Some of us, maybe money is the thing that we value. How do you determine the value of money in your life? Look at what you sacrifice. Some of us, we sacrifice our time. We give all of our time to our jobs and to our occupations or to opportunities to make money. Some of us, we sacrifice our health. We lay our health down on the altar of making money. I'll just keep working and keep working and keep working and keep working. I will grind myself into the ground. Some of us, we sacrifice our family on the altar of making money and being successful. Some of us, it's not money, it's relationships. Relationships are the thing that we're after. Look at what we sacrifice. Look at what we sacrifice. Look, you could, you could determine the value of relationships in your life by what you're willing to lay down. Some of us, we lay down money. We lay down our money. We put, we put our financial resources into our, our relationships. For some of us, it's presence. I'm going to be present with them. And when I'm not with them, I'm going to be thinking about them. It's our time. For some of us, the thing that we value is our appearance. And we're willing to sacrifice for our appearance. We sacrifice our health. We spend time in the gym. We sacrifice money. We sacrifice time. We sacrifice food. And for some of us, what we value is food. And so we sacrifice our appearance, right? We sacrifice our health. We sacrifice our money. 
And I'm telling you, coming at the end of this fast, i got to tack an extra day on because the guys we were allowed to eat yesterday, I've never seen more, more, many, as many dudes excited about lunch in my life. It was awesome. But when we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, we proclaim with our lives what matters the most and what has the highest value. Becoming a living sacrifice, what it does is it proclaims with the way that we live that God is worth my everything because God proclaims with his gospel that we are worth his everything. So why go halfway? See, when you and I say yes to Jesus, when we make him Lord and Savior of our lives, becoming a living sacrifice isn't about you and I giving up something that belongs to us. It's truly about letting God have something that he already purchased and rightly belongs to him. God created you. He thought you up. He designed you. He put you together. You're his idea. So when we give our lives to him as living sacrifices, we're not turning over something that belongs to us. We're actually just giving him back something that belonged to him in the first place. And Paul says this, that offering our whole lives as a living sacrifice is our true and proper worship. Some of your translations may say something like your spiritual act of worship. And I love this. The Greek phrase that Paul uses for true and proper worship or spiritual act of worship is this word logikos. Logikos. What does that sound like? Logical. Which means this. It means giving God our everything. Becoming a living sacrifice and giving God our everything, holding nothing back in who we are and what we do. It's the only logical and reasonable response to his grace and mercy in our lives. There's really no other way to respond than that. There's no other logical or rational response. Paul says it's illogical and it's unreasonable in light of God's mercy and grace to not give him your everything. It's illogical and unreasonable in light of God's mercy and grace to give him some of our lives, but try to hold some back for ourselves. It is illogical and unreasonable, church, to say, God, you can have this part of my life, but keep your hands off this. This is mine. And I'll be honest with you, this is how I lived for a lot of my life. And I'm still trying to figure out what it looks like and how do I open the doors into these places in my life and let God have that. Because God's not going to kick down the door. It means I've got to open the door. If I want to see that change, if I want to see that, that renovation in my life, I've got to give him the opportunity. I'm still learning what that looks like, but the only reasonable and rational and logical response is this. God, you can have it all. Who I am is all for you. And what we find is that the more we offer to God, the more transformation we experience. Because Paul says in verse 2, he says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to see, right, to test and approve of what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. His desire for your life. You see how these two things are linked? The truth is, we're all conforming to something. Every single one of us in this room, we are conforming to something. And so here, what Paul says is this, that, that we're either being conformed, which means we're being deformed by the pattern and mold of this world. Or, we can be conformed and transformed. 
by the Holy Spirit. And that happens in the with God life where we are renewed. We are renewed. We experience renewal and transformation as we give our lives as living sacrifices. When we give God our lives, here's the deal, church. You should expect transformation to happen. You should expect it to happen. And that transformation happens the best in discipleship. That transformation happens in the most noticeable ways when we do it together, when we transform together in those discipling relationships. But when we give our lives over to God, you should expect transformation to happen. Expect change. N.T. Wright, he says this. He says, at the center of the genuine Christian life is a mind that is awake and alert, that's not content to simply take a few guidelines or rules off the peg, but one that is determined how to think, how to speak, and how to act as is appropriate, not for a present kingdom age, but for the new kingdom age, which is already breaking in. Do you get that? Like when Jesus talked about his kingdom, he said it's here. Jesus said, like, repent and believe for the kingdom is here. And as we give our lives to God as a living sacrifice, as we are transformed by the renewing of our mind in that space of giving God our everything, the kingdom, the new, the new kingdom age starts to break through in us right now. Right now. Church, we are not citizens of this world. We are not molded and deformed by the patterns and its ways. We are citizens of heaven. And we are conformed and transformed by the Holy Spirit to the patterns and the ways of the kingdom that is coming. The kingdom that Jesus has, has already inaugurated and started and is going to come and consummate and finish. We live in this weird space of the already but not yet. But here's the thing, that kingdom is already breaking in. And we look forward to the day. I look forward to the day when Jesus comes back and sets this whole world, right, back to the way that it's meant to be. That's the kingdom that Jesus says is now here and alive in you. See, Jesus' kingdom doesn't just try to claim geographical territory. Jesus' kingdom advances in and through our lives. Jesus wants to win the territory of your heart and your mind and your soul. That's who you are. That's your identity. And here's the deal, church. When we give God who we are, when we allow Jesus to win our identity, when we allow him to win who we are, that means that what we do will look different. If you give God your being as a living sacrifice, your doing will take care of itself. And here's kind of what I mean by this. Uh, about a year ago, uh, my, my family, a couple years ago, my family and I, we flew out to, to California to visit some friends. Kentucky, as you know, is on Eastern time, right? California is on Pacific time. So we got on a flight. It was a direct flight to L.A. We left here, right, at, at, at what was our time. It was pretty early in the morning. And we got there, and it was super, super early in the morning. And this is what I mean when I talk about the kingdom, Right? Flying to California and getting off that plane, here's what happened. Like, my whole self, my whole self, everything about the way that I thought, everything about my body, everything about my mind, everything about my spirit, all of me was oriented to a different time zone. But physically, I was here. Everything about me was oriented to something there. Physically, I was here. It's the same way. If you've ever experienced jet lag, now you know what it's like to live in the already but not yet. 
We live here, but everything about who we are as living sacrifices is orienting to a kingdom age that is coming, that is breaking through in us. We are not oriented to the patterns of this world. We are oriented to the patterns of Jesus' kingdom. That's where we live. So if you want to know why answering this question of what does the Christian life look like, why, that, why does that matter, here's why. Our lives, church, are the coming attractions of Jesus' kingdom to the rest of the world. Our lives and the way that we live, the way that we orient our lives, it is the coming attraction. We are the preview of Jesus' kingdom to every single person we come in contact with. But before we can get into the nuts and bolts of what that looks like, we first have to start here. In light of God's grace and mercy, God, here is my heart. In light of your grace and mercy, God, here is my mind. In light of your grace and mercy, God, here is my everything. Our hearts have to be set on responding to God's grace and mercy. Our lives have to be set on responding to his grace and mercy as a living sacrifice. Our mind has to be transformed and oriented not to this kingdom but to his. So before we can talk about what we do in the Christian life, we have to talk about who we are. So I'll ask you this question as we wrap up. A couple kind of challenge questions to kind of take home today is this. What are you still holding on to in the old kingdom? In what ways of your life are you still oriented to the old kingdom. Dallas Willard says this, whatever we worry about reveals we have yet, not yet surrendered to God. You want to know? You want to know what, what are the things that I'm still white knuckling that are mine, that I haven't given to God yet? Just think about the things that you worry about. What we worry about, what we're anxious about, reveals what we have yet to surrender to God. See, being oriented to this world's kingdom says that it is irrational and illogical to give your everything to anything. Being oriented to this world and this kingdom says hold it all back for yourself. But being oriented in the with God life says that it is irrational and illogical to do anything but give God your everything. So my question today, church, is this. What needs to be surrendered today? What do you need to let go of today? worship as we sing today, I just ask you to think through that. I'm going to be down front if you want to talk about what it means to trust Jesus, to step into this with God life, to begin this journey of becoming a living sacrifice. I would love to chat with you. Today you just need prayer. I would love to pray with you. If you want to talk about what it looks like to be a part of this faith community and join this church, I would love to chat with you. We're going to sing together, so everybody hop up on your feet. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. You can stand up. God, today, there are things that we need to let go of. God, today, there are things, there are areas of our lives that we hold back for ourselves. And God, it is irrational and illogical to do anything but give you our all. And there's a reason that that is the first step we take in living the Christian life. To respond to your grace and mercy that covers our everything. So, God, the only thing we can do, the only way to respond is to give you our everything. Because you gave us your everything. So, Jesus, today we say thank you for Jesus. We say, we say thank you for your cross. We say thank you, Jesus, that, that you did not stay in a tomb. We say thank you, Jesus, for your resurrection. We say thank you, Jesus, for the Holy Spirit. All we can say is thank you. So, God, our lives today are lived as living sacrifices. God, would you take it all? hold nothing back. We pray this in all, we pray all of this in your amazing and mighty name. Amen.